Here's the big question. Quick in the game podcast. If you're looking to change your family tree, redefine an industry, reach new limits, or live an unconventional life, how are, how are you setting yourself up to guarantee this will happen? This podcast is going to cut through all the cliche, cookie cutter, and conventional recommendations about finance, business, and life, and give you the tips you need to get the outcomes you want while playing your game. I'm Dan Nicholson, and this is, is, is the Rigging the Game podcast. Rigging the Game Tony, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really uh, excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's great to be here. Well, let's just sort of, um, I guess, kind of jump right into uh, details. If you wouldn't mind just kind of telling folks a little bit about who you are from your perspective. What is it that makes you tick? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career as a software developer, and I quickly found that the best code, the best software solutions were powerless in the face of dysfunctional leadership, dysfunctional organizational structures. And uh, as a systems engineer, I that bothered me. It really <laughs> bothered me that the results, the end results of the projects that we got to work on were so highly dependent on factors that were outside of our control. And we could make the, you know, we could do phenomenal work. And then the, the, you know, the results still suffered because of these seemingly, you know, ethereal sort of factors within the, you know, within the companies that we were, that we were uh, executing the projects for. So that kind of spurred the next decade or so of my career of getting out from behind the computer to, to figure out the, you know, it started as a process of, you know, figuring out what makes leaders and teams and organizations tick and and figuring out the the systems approach to that and uh um and uh, uh then ultimately i i spent some time in in corporate hr and uh, uh designing um helping uh, shortly after the crash of 2008 helping uh, a few uh different companies with uh their turnarounds you know engineering the systems of training and kind of reorienting their teams, um, in some cases, hundreds of employees, um, and what they needed to do so that the, the company could survive and, and their jobs could be preserved. So, uh, that was corporate Tony. Uh, and then, uh, in the, about, I still remember the, you know, I still remember the day, actually, I think I was watching, a uh, Sam, uh, a Sam ovens pod, uh, webinar or something. Hmm. Um, and I said on an airplane, um, and I said, uh, um, I am really tired of, of knowing the people that work in airports better than I, uh, than I know my friends, like being <laughs> able to see them more frequently, uh, yeah. because I was doing the, you know, uh, fly out on a Monday thing and then fly back at the end of the week or, you know, the, the driving around the state, uh, you know, or around, uh, uh the East coast where we're located to be on site with, you know, clients. So I said, there had to be a better way. And uh, so a few years ago, we actually launched uh, a program called the Client Success System. Uh, works with experts, you know, coaches, consultants, service providers, anyone that's a client-based business. So we've even helped, um, you know, we've even helped fitness professionals. We've even helped doctors because doctors are really just uh, client businesses with uh, HIPAA protection. Um, and... Uh, um, and you know anyone who serves the you know clients, we help them to you know optimize their client journey 
to to dial in the same kind of work actually that we did in uh, in a corporate, but but creating the curriculum that's going to get clients great results. It's going to help them change you know their behavior towards their goals, uh, and it's pretty cool because the process of you know doing that just happens to make for for really easy client work for the expert, and it makes clients want to stay for a really long time because mm. they get great results. Uh, so much I want to dig into. Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. Uh, going back to uh, software development, kind of the first uh, inflection point in your career, what was it that made you want to be a software developer to begin with? So I uh, grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. And I saw, I think I started my first faux business at the age of six uh, where I was making uh, like handmade greeting cards and mm, selling them it. to my family's uh, to my family's employees um, around the uh, around the holidays, uh, we I didn't really make any money. I think I got a couple candy bars, the you know worth of uh, something. But that was yeah. enough to make the feedback loop click. You know, I make something, I sell something, I get money, mm. and so software was a natural kind of an evolution out of that. I was a self taught software. Uh, software developer. So I um, didn't really have any formal education in that. I later got formal education um, around systems engineering, but around software, it was really a matter of, I wanted a, you know, I wanted a laptop. My mom said, uh, you know, no, uh, you, you know, we have the family computer, but if you want, you know, something else, you have to work for it. So I, I, you know, saved up enough money and I got a computer, started programming, started selling the, you know, software websites, Things like that, uh, and then uh, it, what, what it age was that? From there, that was 12, 11, 12, something like that. So you started uh, selling website design, and and uh, and then it just kind of blossomed from there. Uh, yeah, website design, spreadsheets, the you know writing the uh, writing macros. We systematized some some inventory control systems, things like that. And it sounds like you you grew up in a family of entrepreneurs, so they were pretty encouraging of these endeavors? I think it was a mix. You know, in my family of entrepreneurs, it was, the, you know, they were all busy a lot. Mm. So I think that, you know, they got a kick out of that. But there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of, of time. There was a lot of time for me to, uh, you know, do things. And I was always pretty bored by school. So, you know, I would get that work done or I would, uh, um, or I would deem some classes to to not be worthy of uh, uh, my time, and I would just wing it uh, and you know take the test without doing the work, and I would spend the rest of my time that you know trying to make things. Um, and so yeah, they were, you know, I will say that they were not uh, discouraging mm. uh, by it. So it's almost this innate quality that you had within of wanting to see the the value of your contribution of your time. If I'm going to work on something, you want to see the see the return. So if you're doing, and maybe I'm projecting because we have almost very similar timelines of our entrepreneurial journey. Uh, fascinating to me. And similarly in school, kind of particular in high school, uh, struggled with kind of what's the point of this class and how do I kind of hack this or find the most, most efficient path forward rather than just checking all these boxes. So maybe that's my own kind of self projection, but I was just noticing somewhat of a a through line and, and you kind of looking for some intrinsic value in the stuff that you're doing. 
Is that a hundred percent? That was exactly, yeah, that was exactly my journey. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it's not as if my grades were, you know, bad. I, I have a, a pretty good memory and I was a pretty quick study. Um, so it was not hard for me to do the minimum possible to, you know, skate by in the classes where I didn't see the value. The, you know, I knew that the, you know, so many of the things that I was told I had. And, you know, for me, there was also a little bit of, uh, uh, a healthy, um, uh, at least I'm labeling it healthy, um, but <laughs> a bit of a healthy uh, rebellion from authority. So in the entire time that I was in high school, I didn't read a single book cover to cover. Mm. That was my defiance of, you know, I'm not going to, you tell me I have to read it. I'm not going to read it. In the year following high school, I read 24 books in the 12 months after I mm. graduated. So it wasn't a lack of wanting to, you know, read at least at, at, while I was in high school, I didn't read any books that were assigned to me. I read plenty of the, you know books, but, uh, but just not the ones that the teachers told me I had to, yeah. uh, because if I didn't see a point, it was, it was, uh, you know, that was a hard no for me. Do you find that defiance still exists for you now? Yes, although the, you know, when you're an independent entrepreneur, who's the you know who's the authority? Like you know, there just aren't a lot of of the, you know the authority's me, right? So like sometimes I fight against. Sometimes if I make a to do list full of things, I find myself saying, uh, you know, no, screw you, you know, previous Tony who made that list, I'm not doing it today. Right. But uh, I think I just get a kick out of it. See, working hard to you know pay as little taxes as I you know as I ethically can, I think, mm -hmm. is my way of uh, being I rebellious today. That. I certainly yeah. There is this uh, this through line I, I see in, in many of the guests that we have on the show, but just entrepreneurs in general that we just tend to be non-conventional in the sense that we're not necessarily interested in following following whatever is the pre-planned path. Something about that just sounds soul crushing for some reason totally and, uh and so it seems like we're all we're all on some level just wired to to want to do the opposite everyone's over here doing this one thing ah, i don't want to do that let me do the, let me do the opposite of that well i think uh, that you and i i think that you and i talked about this before the idea of uh the you know, for us both that you know we could go get a job and be paid the you know in many cases for you know many the, you know, seasons of the, you know, my career, at least, I don't know, uh, the, you know, your numbers necessarily, but, you know, I could get a job and be paid uh, easily what I, you know, what I end up taking home in a year mm -hmm. um, right yeah. now, at least, but that, you know, I would not be, and I should say like, and work far less, right. You know, and be able to, you know, put in my time and the, you know, probably be loved the, you know, wherever that is, because I can, because I would likely be, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, productive, uh, you know, people there. Mm -hmm. But I think that it would be soul crushing. I think there is a business reason why not to as well, which is the, you know, all of this hard work that, you know, we hope at least if we use, you know, wisdom in our strategy. And, and, and I think we are the, you know, in part, thanks to, you know, you and some of what I've learned from you. But the, you know, the hope is that, uh, you know, we end up building equity, we end up building that, you know, something that has a, you know, that has a much longer sort of cycle to the, you know, to the payday. And so that has its own kind of fulfillment in it. Yeah, well, you refer you referred to yourself as, as corporate Tony, when you were kind of referencing back to the, the, the period of time where you were, in some dysfunctional environments and you were traveling a ton and more experience with 
more engagement with people at the airport than with your with your real friends. And I'm just curious how you when you think back on corporate corporate Tony, is that almost like a different it's like almost like a different person. Like I've given this this label so that I can firewall it off from like real Tony. <laughs> well, through a chunk of that time, in fairness, I was also a partner of uh, the consulting firm that mm. I was working in. So it wasn't as if there was no, it wasn't as if, and, and you know, we were a small consulting firm, you know, sub 100 employees. Um, it wasn't as if I was working for a Deloitte or, you know, a huge, uh, you know, consulting operation. Sure. Um, but a lot of the companies that I was on site with um, and, you know, working with, you know, were these large, you know, a thousand employees would be on the small end that, you know, most of them were the, you know, 10 plus thousand employees. And there is just a difference that, you know, there is a difference in the entire environment of what that's like that, you know, you do have to play a certain amount of politics. You do have to, the, you know, you do have to soak up the, the, the culture of what's there and be a little bit of a chameleon. Mm-hmm. And I am, am am very glad that that I don't have to uh, that I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think once you move from maybe mid or upper mid market clients, that there is sort of this paradigm of let's have some meetings to talk about future meetings, where maybe in that yeah. meeting we might do something, or that might be the meeting where we plot out what the next six meetings will be. And then eventually a year from now, we might, might do something. Yeah. And there's a lot of, I don't know if you've experienced that, but there's a lot of hand wringing and politics and uh, trying to manage your manager and all these other terms that I learned when I, during my days at, Del- at Deloitte that, <laughs> uh, that uh, kind of go back to this whole dysfunctional environment where if, if you're someone who's results oriented, the idea of a meeting about a meeting about a future meeting about when we might do something just feels very uh, unfulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a, a draft of a book that I wrote. I'm the back then. I may, you know, I may actually finish it and release it. Um, although it's certainly not my target market these days. But there was a draft of a book that I wrote that the working title was, you know, meetings don't have to be such a slog. <laughs> Um, and I think I wrote it, you know, while on a plane that you know, on the way home saying, I don't ever want to sit through these ever again. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I found um, with a, a reasonably high degree of certainty that I could predict how dysfunctional a culture was by going to two rooms in an office. If I went to the company kitchen and if I went to the bathroom. And okay. the number of passive aggressive signs, you know, the ones that say like, uh, clean up after yourself, your mom doesn't work here. Mm. The number of, of passive aggressive signs almost always correlated um, to the amount of dysfunction um, because it spoke to some of the, the sacred cows, to the, to the blind spot in leadership of not being willing to have the tough conversation that says, uh, you know, hey, Phil, stop leaving your dirty, uh, you know, curry bowl in the sink. You're stinking up the kitchen. Like, this isn't cool, man. Like, you know, cut it out, which if Phil did that in your office or my office, we would say that to him and, <laughs> and we would probably say it in a joking way and it probably would stop. But the, you know, once those leadership conversations stop happening, either because of the corporate politics or because everybody's spending all their time in meetings that they don't have time to have real conversations, um, yeah. that it, 
very quickly devolves. It you know very quickly kind of you know spirals into this place where real conversations are increasingly infrequent. Mm. That's such a great observation. Those places like the bathroom and the in the kitchen, those are supposed to be these safe safe places to a degree. And when they get overrun by all the the kind of cliche signs and everything, it it is this this indicator that leadership probably isn't playing their game. They just subscribe mm-hmm. to some cookie cutter playbook that they got from some class that said, Hey, we, we have to put up these signs. So is it, is it sort of like office space, the sign that says like, ask yourself, is it good for the company that it's become almost totally. this like soulless environment? <laughs> yeah. So I love, I love that. So I'd love to hear more about, you mentioned kind of um, you spent kind of a decade period of time trying to understand what makes leaders tick. And you mentioned taking this kind of system approach to, uh, I guess, evaluating, evaluating them and, and I presume coming up with a, a solution. Could you kind of expand on what you meant by system approach and, and how that, how does that work? Yeah. So the best way that I can, can, you know, talk about systems is, and I think a number of the, the listeners of you know, your podcast will, will probably be on board with this idea, but everything is a system. So how we, you know, we were just talking about the kitchen and the you know, bathroom, how we eat is a system. How we go to the bathroom is a system. That, you know, how we, you know, these days you can even see this even more clearly, but you know, how we meet our life partners and fall in love and mm. how we make decisions around furniture are systems. And once we are okay with the concept that everything is a system, then we can start to optimize for whatever the outcome is that we want. And, and you talk about this a lot from the standpoint of, of, you know, business strategy and playing your game and, you know, deciding what you really want out of business rather than just, uh, you know, playing by the, you know, Russell Brunson's playbook of, you know, whatever, or, you know, whoever the expert is, I don't mean to, to pick on, um, sure. I don't mean to pick on uh, Brunson, but, once we we start to look at a system, a system is a function that has an input that goes into it and then an output that comes out of it. And, you know, we can tweak any of the factors within it uh, uh, based on the, you know, what we want to see the outcome be. And so, you know, this is, is I'll just use a, you know, simple example. We were, were, were you know, I'm not a huge fan of, of, some of the modern medical establishment, um, um, having having had some you know uh, personally just not so great experiences, and uh, some of it's regional, some of it's just you know where we are. But we were getting some you know not so great advice around uh, a health issue that our you know daughter was having, mm. and she's she's uh, six months old at the time of this recording, and so it's tough, right? Because she can't you know she can't talk, she can't explain you know what's going on, but yet you know, we had to, you know, troubleshoot it. Like I pulled out some of my you know, systems planning spreadsheets and said, okay, here's the output that we're getting. Here are the inputs that we're, you know, that we're putting in, right? Sleep, food, the, you know, the inputs when you're six months old are pretty small. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty closed system for us to be able to, you know, troubleshoot. But, but we identified the you know, variables of the things we wanted to try. And within about two weeks, totally separate advice from what the doctor said, but, um, within about you know two weeks, we had the problem you know totally solved, and so that is you know in a nutshell that's what I mean about a systems approach. As that relates to leadership, 
I think there are layers that contribute to the dysfunction. You know, one of the biggest ones is, is, and, and it's one of the reasons why I love all of the things that, that you're doing because it is so foundational of deciding what you want the outcome to be. <laughs> because if you don't, if you're not really clear on that, it's really hard to optimize. And in fact, you're, you're, you're almost always going to get stuck in, uh, you know, what I call a sea of, of variables where you're not making any decisions because, because you're waiting for the, because you're waiting for the, the secret to climactically emerge and kind of tell you mm. that, you know, what the outcome should be. Uh, and you're not, you know, you're not making any decisions that are the constants that then allow you to make the rest of your decisions. So there's this cascading factor that, you know, happens that I see all the time where the you know, great, the, you know, great people can't make decisions. They can't, you know, commit to decisions because they're in this, uh, they're in this, you know, uh, paralysis by analysis kind of, uh, you know, mode. Um, and that's just one of the, the, you know, there are a few, you know, logical fallacies and kind of traps that, you know, IC leaders get, you know, caught in. And I could certainly dive into that more, but uh, did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. And, uh, and uh, of course, you always have me at logical fallacies. I'm always interested in hearing more, more about that because I, you know, you mentioned this whole input in the system and then there's this, this output uh, and maybe that output is what you want or maybe it, it isn't. But within this whole system can be all these fallacies and biases that we're subject to. And we don't even know they exist. We're just like operating on, on autopilot and yep. then uh, we're surprised by the, the output. So yeah, I'd love to, kind of hear more about your thoughts around these biases or fallacies that you see business owners or systems being subject to that kind of doom their doom their success or doom their ability yeah. to get the output that they really want or intended. Well, so you know so much of our work is centered around is centered around people, is centered around the you know humans that you know mm -hmm. either in the work that you know we were doing before, you know, we worked on systems and I you know I consulted on uh, you know many software projects, more abstract systems where you know how are departments you know working together, um, some lean Six Sigma you know optimization projects, things like that. But the, you know now our work is more with you know experts looking to create great outcomes with their clients, and and how do they show up as a leader for their you know for their clients? But whether it's uh, you know whether it's a middle manager who's leading a team, or whether it's uh, uh, health coach leading their clients to you know eat healthier. It's really the same model, and one of the biggest logical fallacies is this idea of you hear people say this often, somewhat defensively, um, of well, I am the way that I am, mm -hmm. or the you know take me as I am, right? And that's great advice for a life partner. That's great advice the <laughs> you know for uh, you know, for my wife and you know how I want to treat her. Uh, which is actually an interesting, there, there's an interesting, you know, sort of uh, wrinkle to that because my wife and I work together. Um, she actually <laughs> runs the company's operations. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, you know, it is an interesting thing, right? Because as my partner, I absolutely take her as she is. I love her and I cherish her and I think she is amazing. And I try to, and I try to remind her of that as often as I, um, as I break out of uh, being selfish. 
um, so that I can, <laughs> uh, so that I can, um, you know, so that I can nurture that relationship because it's important to me in our roles at work. I don't take her as she is because we have a job to get done. And some, and some days the way that she is <laughs> for that matter, the way that I am, the way that I show up at work is not going to lead us to the results that we want is not going to, you know, that's part of that function. Right. And so I think one of the biggest fallacies is people assume that a human is an input when they're actually the function and that we need to peel back those layers that like a person is not the, you know, just a unit of, you know, something in, um, in, you know, um, in corporate consulting, uh, you know, days we had a, you know, we had a term when it came to, you know, deciding who were the right people on a team. And we had people on a team, there were always two options, train them or trade them. You know, like if we wanted different results, if we wanted a different output, then we needed to look at the team and we either needed to develop that team so that they could get, so that, you know, they could get the skills, they could begin to, you know, act with the behaviors that would lead to the results, or we needed to, you know, trade them. And the healthiest organizations had that as an open conversation that included team members in it so that it wasn't, wasn't, uh, you know, some shadowy figure um, you know, is going to decide your, you know, from the HR, you know, floor is going to decide your fate. It was a matter of, the, you know, hey, this is where we need to be. That like, are you well suited for this? Is this aligned with where you want to go to? Because the fact is, you got to change. <laughs> you know, we all have to change. Um, you know, right now we're living with the the fallout from the uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. That you know, organizations everywhere have to change if they are going to survive. And there are are little changes that they need to make. The, you know, using Zoom instead of meeting in the office or, you know, things like that. But there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of organizations that are going to have to make massive changes. And if they don't make changes, that's going to be bad for everybody. You know, if they don't make changes, that's going to lead to, to thousands of people losing their jobs as opposed to cycling through the, you know, the few people, uh, the, you know, on the team who might not want to or be willing to make those changes. I'm really processing that that uh, what you just shared, and in particular, this idea of uh, the person or individual is actually the the function. A powerful observation, and what I was taking away from what you were were sharing was this this notion that we tend to want to do things as in a binary way either either we trade or we trade either we trade them or we train them, and that it's this kind of all or nothing approach. What I was hearing from you is that that's not always the case. It's not necessarily binary. There's there's a a broader perspective that we need to have. It's a process, right? So you know, it's a process of you know we should all be you know we have a uh, the you know, and we're not a large company. You know, we have a few other consultants besides you know besides me um, at this point, and a few you know a few supportive team members. Uh, but the you know we make it a priority for everyone on our team to spend time on continuing education. Now, that's not to say that, that you know, I know that, uh, you know, my wife as, a, for instance, you know, she does not like the project management that, you know, aspect of the operations, right? And so we know that we're going to trade her out of that role eventually, but that's not stopping her from, you know, just this week, she, you know, told me she found a great, the, you know, course uh, that was at a, you know, steep, uh, a steep discount because, you know, that's the way that, that so many things are uh, these days yeah. and that, you know, she's taking so that, you know, she can get, she can get better at that. So it's not, you're absolutely right. It's not a, you know, it's not a binary of the you know, choice. It is a process. 
And it's a process when we're serving our you know, clients. The fact is that a client that comes into our process, and, and this is true for every single client business, unless they're a commodity and they're not really providing a significant value, they're, you know, not that those two are the same thing. If they're not providing significant value, there's a business model problem. If they're a commodity and they're, you know, they are, are, you know, doing something that anyone else can do, then there's probably not a lot of, of, you know, optimizing that you can do. And, and, you know, I would encourage them to, you know, look at, you know, their own leadership, but if they see themselves as, as leading their clients, you know, whether it's a health coach, whether it's an agency, a consultant, you know, working with other, uh, with other businesses, the model's exactly the same. Your clients have to come out the other side of you working with them, a different person in at least some ways. You know, they have to be a different, a better, a more mature, you know, a more polished person in the ways that they expect to get that result. Because if we treat the person as fixed, well, then you're going to give them a couple tactics and they're going to fall back on the same, they're going to fall back on, you know, the same, uh, the, you know, head trash or the same, uh, the, you know, the same environmental factors uh, that prevented them from, you know, getting their results before. And the help that you give them is only going to be short-lived and it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be as great as it can be. But if we treat the person as someone who can be, you know, who can be trained, who can be developed, who we can help to, you know, lead them towards, the, you know, making some of the changes that they want to make um, in their life and, you know, align that behind what they want, you know, which is ultimately what we have to do, right? Or else... The, or else they're going to be rebelling, uh, you know, from that system eventually too. Right. Um, if we do that, then you know we're able to, you know, lead our clients to just incredible results. Right. Yeah. What I'm what I'm hearing from you, and it sounds like you apply this to your daughter, but also with clients, is that it needs to be more individualized and specific to to uh, to their needs or their scenario. And Often I, I find that this whole, I call it group indexing versus personal indexing, but this idea that mm. you come in and you're a six, you bring your daughter in and she's six months old and she weighs a certain amount and she's a certain ethnicity. And so they run it through their mental algorithm and they go, okay, well, based off these four inputs and this must be the problem, right? And it's based off all these yeah. averages of, you know, 80% of the time, a six month old that comes in, that's a that's female, et cetera, this is going to be the problem. So let's, let's work on that. The problem is it may actually be the other 20%, right? What's in yeah. the other 20%. And so we end up kind of struggling through things and not getting closer to the cure because we're getting subjected so often to this, this group indexing of like, well, what, what is the average person going to need in this scenario? But business totally. owners are not average people. Their businesses are all unique. Your daughter is unique, right? In and of itself. She's just because she's a six month old girl doesn't mean that her health issue is going to be whatever the average or most common issue is. Uh, and, and so I'm waxing a little bit poetic, but uh, the takeaway uh, that I was uh, hearing from you it kind of fits back to this. We can't subject everything to group indexing. What are the averages we need to make sure that the system is built around personal needs or the specific needs of the of the business and we actually have so so we call that process troubleshooting the okay. you know the process of of you know here's the scripts here's the plan here's the you know here's the standard you know here's the to use your word here's the you know here's the average 
-hmm. and then seeing how did that work. So, you know, getting that feedback of, you know, how did that work for the individual? And it's really important on both sides. So you highlighted, which I think is absolutely true. No one wants to feel like they're being put in a box, which is why we have to, you know, we have to diagnose, you know, we have to diagnose first prescription without diagnosis, you know, is malpractice. So, you know, as an expert, we have to make sure that we're actually asking all the questions and not fitting our, you know, fitting our client into a box. But once we try something, there's the troubleshooting step, which, which has to happen on both sides mm. of the, which is the, you know, is it the 20% is that, you know, this individual is outside of the norm is outside of the average, or are there factors, factors of the system that weren't actually done according to spec Were there factors of the, you know, was the meal plan only followed for five out of, out of seven days. And that's why you're not feeling any better. You know, was the, the, you know, did you take the standard Facebook ads and not run them according to spec? Did you, you know, run them and then, you know, you got freaked out by the results. So you, you pause them and then you change the ad spend and then you, and I'm not a Facebook ad expert, but from yeah. what I've, I've learned from the people who are, that's a really dumb thing to do is to you know, mess with the algorithm when it, when it's working. Uh, and so the, you know, we could use this example in all kinds of places that, you know, was the formula followed and that's what you need to look at around, you know, troubleshooting, because it could mean that you have to have a tough conversation with the client to, you know, help them to, to really give the prescription an honest shot the, you know, but then there's the opposite side of, you know, we all have to be open and, you know, honest to the fact that the, you know, the a significant percentage of, you know, individuals are going to be outside of the norm. And, and I mean, in some cases, the, you know, a hundred percent are going to be, you know, away from the, they're going to be away from the average, just, uh, you know, question of, you know, how many standard deviations away from the average, if we want to get, uh, you know, nerdy about statistics. We do. But, we do want to get nerdy. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> uh, the, but that is the, you know, it's that process of, you know, troubleshooting of, of, of collecting the data, not just the data about the result, but the leading indicators on the data of the, you know, how is the person, how is the human interacting with the process? And so when we collect that, then really powerful things can, you know, come out of that. We can have the, we can have what I refer to as the conversation under the conversation that, you know, we can start to talk about um, the, you know, and it's funny, it goes right back to the, you know, kitchen. Uh, with the, you know, passive aggressive signs, we can start to have the conversation that no one's ever had before. The, we can start to say, you know, hey, why is it that, you know, right when you get close to the kind of success that you say you want, that, you know, you pull back in these ways? Or, you know, why is it? And the more data that we have, the easier it is to actually have that conversation because it's not me accusing you of something, right? It's me saying, hey, I'm looking at this data and, I'm confused by some of the things that are going on. Like, why don't we look at it together so that we can troubleshoot your results? And, you know, then we can have the real conversation that in some cases, you know, no one's ever been willing to have with people before. That's a really great point. A couple of years ago, I, uh, I went on this little exploration for a client who uh, needed some uh, help with health insurance for their company. And I called... I know, 10 different health insurance brokers in the greater Seattle area where I'm based. And I got on the phone with each, each person and they all said, Hey, you know what? We've got access to the best plans and we're super reliable. We give our, we give our customers uh, our personal cell phone numbers and we really pride ourselves on 
on being uh, really responsive and, and consultative. And so I had this, this call, like I said, with about t- 10 folks and heard almost exactly the same thing, <laughs> which was super interesting to me because then I thought, well, what is it that I'm saying to folks that is basically the ex- yeah. exact same that they, they, uh, they hear? And so I mentioned that because, you know, over the last couple of years, I've noticed that there's been an uptick, and maybe this is just an internet land, of people who are positioning themselves as systems experts. Mm. And they don't necessarily have a background in it like you do, like years and years of experience across multiple different disciplines. How does somebody really be able to evaluate and know the person they're going to work with to help them with systems is actually going to be qualified at it. And back to this like customization is really going to be able to actually tailor things to their specific system needs. Cause there's just all this, if you, if you if you imagine if you call around and talk to folks about their systems, they're going to say, Oh yeah, we customize things to your needs. Every Facebook ads person is like, we customize things to, to your needs. <laughs> of course. Uh, every insurance person. Um, and so I know that you do, and I know your expertise, and I've seen it. We've got mutual clients and mutual friends and contacts. Uh, long story long, how can somebody really evaluate and know that, that the person they might work with from a, a systems perspective really, really gets it and can uh, actually customize things to their their specific need yeah this is such a great question and it's not unique to you know systems i don't think although you know that's certainly the vantage point that that you know i see things from the first thing is is the first thing that that you know the first place that you would encourage someone to start and that i would encourage someone to start which is what do you want so i think one of the things around you know systems and i'm putting the you know air quotes uh, you know around that there's a lot of misconception around what a system is. You know, for me, with a background in system in you know systems engineering, with you know certifications and and uh, that you know experience, I see everything as a system. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. see you know I see the world as you know one big set of you know matrix code, and uh, you know it's why I love problems because it just means I get to roll up my sleeves and you know figure it out. And the you know look at things in a new way. You can imagine how much fun I had after the 2016 elections, uh, just as <laughs> one example of a system with you know really weird. You know, it doesn't matter what side you're on. The you know that was a, a, a surprise, right? And so I love things like that because it's a great way for me to go in, you know, with the engineering perspective and to figure out what's really going on. A spreadsheet is not a system. <laughs> a whole bunch of zaps are not a system. I mean, I suppose they are systems in the way. That, you know, in the way that everything is a system, but you know, those are all tools. They're really not. If you're thinking that that that's a system that someone's going to help you with, that's way too zoomed in. And so the first thing is, you know, someone could, you know, there are a lot of experts, and there are a lot of of you know inexpensive experts that if you need one little thing, <laughs> like if you need something that you know fits their needs exactly, that's a phenomenal you know way for you to get that. Um, you know, if you know that you need a widget to solve a problem, you shouldn't hire a systems engineer to, to you know, recreate uh, Microsoft Word for you. You know, that would be really silly. 
because there is Microsoft Word and it and it functions phenomenally. Um, um, or you know, if you don't like that, you could use one of the other flavors. You could use you know Google Docs or you know Apple's Pages or whatever you know whatever flavor you want. Right? You don't need someone to help you. You don't need someone to help you rebuild that. But what we find so often and is is when we get to what what is really going on and we have conversations with people, they are not, they really don't need systems. They think that they need systems, but what they really need is a different way of working with clients. They really need to re-engineer their client success, that they've built their client the, you know their client success to a point, and you know I'm speaking to the you know to the internet the you know world when I say this of you know client uh, businesses, but the same thing works in you know so many cases uh, you know gym owners just to name the you know one um, you know group, but you know what you really find is if you don't know the factors, if you can't say here are the factors that lead to a client's success and here are the factors that you know take away from their success, and I'm using success as as a proxy for for value. Because what that really means is these are the factors that are going to lead to client value. And, you know, value is, is it's not always a one-to-one, -one, but it's a pretty, it's, it's a pretty tight correlation to, you know, revenue and to, you know, being able to, you know, generate profit. If you're not creating value for, for clients, then you're a scam um, and yeah. you're going to be short, you're going to be short-lived, right? It's going to be, you know, it's going to be very short-lived, um, uh, it's going to be a, a flash in the pan. But if you are creating value for clients and you're, and you know how that value is being created, you can leverage that into phenomenal, you know, lifetime client value. You know, you can systematize that value. You can, you know, we can look at the abstract systems around that so that we can engineer how do you do that on scale? Um, I was, you know, I was on a call with a client, uh, yesterday, I think. And they were saying about how, you know, they created this you know, great, you know, super valuable outcome for a client. Uh, they're an agency. And they're like, yeah, but I don't know how that's going to scale. You know, like, like I've had this in my mind to do for months, they said, but mm -hmm. the, you know, I couldn't see how it was going to scale. So I didn't even want to do it. Well, just create the value, <laughs> just make the value. <laughs> and then we can figure out the, you know, we can figure out how to scale. But if you don't make the value, there's a hundred percent chance that we can't scale it. Now we have to use wisdom to you know decide when we you know when we invest our time and and you know you have a great framework for that that I've used, but the, you know that's the thing that I would say is you need to get clear just to to sum up that uh, that sort of long story around systems, uh, which of course you can tell I'm not the least bit passionate about in any way, <laughs> but if, you know just to sum that up, you know what you need to look at is is what do you really need. And that, you know, if you, if you need a cookie cutter approach and you're going to hire someone to help you set up the spreadsheets to, you know, translate the, you know, what you're doing into spreadsheets or into an Asana project or something like that, those are phenomenal resources. You know, you and I know some, you know, some people who do some things like that and that's phenomenal. No reason to, you know, reinvent the, to, you know, use someone like me who's going to, you know, who's going to take a, a much more holistic look. But if you're looking at your business and you know you're feeling drained by the next client call because you don't know what you need to say to get them results and the you know you need a much more holistic look well then the you know you need to find someone with a broader scope hmm. yeah i think that's well said i think it goes back to you you mentioned that there's an input that goes into a system and then there's an output earlier on and it seems to me that a lot of the folks just want to focus on only that system piece and ignore mm -hmm. what are the inputs? Are they, those even the correct inputs? 
what is the output? Is that even the correct output? Uh, and instead, they're just focused on what's the tech. I could automate yeah. that for you. Okay, great. And so maybe a client presents themselves with a problem, which is a, I'm spent, I'm I'm working too much. I need to automate my processes so that I'm not working so much. And then they go solve that problem, but that's not actually the problem. The reason why they're working so much is because they're not delivering enough value to their clients or some other issue that's above and beyond uh, just the automation. So, hundred uh, percent. And you know that example, Dan, is a perfect example of even if you get there's a, a Latin phrase that I won't um, try to quote, but it it goes something like uh, when the gods wish to punish us, they give us what we um, uh, they give us what we're asking for, or they uh, they answer our uh, prayers. Hmm. And that's a perfect example of I'm working so much, I just want to automate this. Well, if you actually get that, if you actually get that automation and all of the work is because the right things aren't dialed in, you're actually just going to make the problem worse because you're going to be doing useless work efficiently and, and which is still, which is still wasting money, wasting cycles. And now you have a system that you have to maintain and you're still no closer to the, to the kernel of, you know, value creation that, you know, really is the you know, yeah. what your business is you know, ultimately built on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I call it the Halloween candy principle. So a lot of people think that kids want to, are excited about Halloween because they want candy and they do want candy, but, and you'll see with your daughter, she gets a little bit older Yeah. Uh, after Wait. they get a huge bucket of candy. And then like two days later, there's still like a huge bucket of candy and they've kind of forgotten about it like a week later. And then everyone brings in their candy into the office eventually, like two or three months later. And you're going like, well, what happened here? I thought the kids really wanted candy. No, they wanted to dress up and walk around and have people hand them candy. They didn't mm -hmm. necessarily. And yeah, they want to eat some of it. But what they really wanted was to dress up and walk around and have someone hand them the candy. And so it's sort of that same thing where it's like, you think you want a system, but that's not really what you want or need. It's just some vanity metric. The candy is the vanity metric to a degree. I got a bunch of candy. Uh, yep. Must have had a good time. And so trying to figure out what's the, what's the real problem? What are you really trying to solve? I know that's what you're an expert at. And I know you've got a new product that you just recently launched that's, I think, going to help more people understand that as well. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, sharing a bit about that and how you decided to launch that. Yeah, for sure. We, um, so we've condensed that, you know, all of the you know, like I said, a few years ago, we released uh, the client success system and, you know, we helped to systematize the, the client journey in three main areas was, you know, what we helped them with. The, we helped them create the system, the, the curriculum design, even if they're an agency, there still needs to be a degree of, you know, curriculum in the client journey because the client has to get better, you know, rarely, like unless they want to be a, you know, a commodity, you know, like agency, they need to be helping their clients get better at the same time that they're doing a great job, you know, serving their clients. And of course that's, that's crystal clear to, you know, coaches, consultants. So we would design the, you know, client journey. We would install the, the systems and the, the, the metrics and the feedback loops that make all of that work. And then, um, and yes, we would even uh, create some of the, the shiny systems and automations. And then the third factor that, you know, we didn't build into it initially. It just kind of happened was the mentorship, the, the leadership and the mindset help. Because what we saw 
is that all kinds of client leaders let their clients get away with murder. <laughs> they mm. don't know how to set good boundaries, especially people who the you know who worked in a corporate sort of an environment or you know worked or or the you know like didn't and the you know they you know came from um the you know another field that you know they came from a field where they might have been making you know much less and now suddenly they're charging these high prices and the only people that have ever given them that much money before you know is maybe you know maybe no one but you know the only people that you know came close to giving them that much money before was a boss so the mindset that they have towards how do they treat that person, how do they serve that person, is that they think of that person as a boss, which yeah. is the last thing that we want to think of when there's a client because the client came to us for our expertise. So if we're treating them like, uh, you know, like we work for them, then we're missing the fact that we need to lead the higher version of the client. You know, we need to be leading the client into that higher version of the client that you know, who was really the one who, you know, hired us, who, who was, you know, courageous enough to invest and the, you know, wants growth in their business and their life. And uh, so what we did is we condensed the leadership and the, the things that we've learned from that and the, the you know, some of our uh, mentorship into a six-week course that is, uh, um, as we, we record, it's actually launching this week. And so we have what, what we call leader scripts or the exact uh, scripts we we cheekily say on our landing page, uh, uh, just insert your genius, rinse and repeat. <laughs> so the you know using the scripts you can the, you know you can effectively have really great conversations the, you know with your clients. You can have the right mental frame inside of every leader script. We actually start the script with what you need to be saying to yourself before you even get on a call with a client or a you know group call with a, you know with a bunch of clients. Because what we say to ourselves is oftentimes even more important than what we say to each other. And so we, uh, you know, we script that out, of course, with all of the variables so that, you know, you can fill in the, you know, fill in the blanks pertaining to what uh, you do with clients. But the value of that is that, the, you know, we want to see a lot of these client uh, uh, businesses who maybe don't have the leadership piece down to really be able to begin to scale, you know, we want to be able to, you know, help them exactly where they are and, you know, help them get over that, uh, uh, get over that hurdle. So we're even including, uh, we have a, a Slack group, which should be music to the ears of everyone who, who doesn't want one more Facebook group that they have Amen. to be in. Amen to that. So we have a, a Slack group where we're going to be providing support and, and uh, we have some live sessions throughout their time in the uh, course. But, uh, you know, we want, you know, we want everybody who goes through that program to, you know, never be afraid of a client interaction and never be afraid that, that they're not going to know exactly what to say um, to their client or be able to, to show up as the and, and feel like the leader that they know they are. Well, I could chat with you for, for hours and hours, but where can people find that course? And then where can people find you uh, in general? Yeah. The course is at Legendary Client Leaders. Um, people can find me and my podcast at, uh, the Client Whisperer Show or ClientWhisperer.show. And it's a great one. I'm a fan. Uh, well, thanks, <laughs> thanks so much. Very much. For, uh, thanks for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate it and uh, hope to catch up more soon. Absolutely, Dan. It was a lot of fun. We'll have to do this more often. For sure. <laughs> Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into the Rigging the Game podcast. You can find show notes and much, much more at www.riggingthegame.com. And remember, you get to set the rules for how you play this game of life. So if you make the rules, why not rig the game to win? Rigging the Game.